We'll turn with me this morning in your Bibles again to uh, the book of Acts. We've come to Acts chapter 6. And we'll look at the first seven verses here together this morning. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, hear God's holy, infallible word. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And our reading there this morning. You may have heard the joke, it's kind of corny, but makes a good point, that if you've found the perfect church, uh, it's no longer perfect as soon as you join. Right? The church is full of sinners, and, and so it's not immune to problems and struggles and, and things to, to work through. We've, we've heard of many wonderful things as we've studied the book of Acts so far. Um, godly biblical examples in the early church, we've seen them growing, and there's deep and sacrificial love and devotion to prayer and to each other. But we've also seen a realistic view of the church as a group of people, right? a group of sinners. We read few weeks back of the, the sad story of Ananias and Sapphira. And we come this morning to some kind of cultural, ethnic division, tension, uh, potential for division in the church, a potential threat to the ministry of the church and, and their fellowship. Um, and yet through that, we see also in this passage a wonderful example of God preserving peace and preserving fellowship as his people pursue those things uh, in wisdom. So this morning I want to look at, at, at the three points in your outline. Just look first at the, the threat here to the ministry, the fellowship of the church. What was that? What can we learn from that? And then secondly, the solution that's reached and the way that God blesses that. Uh, and then thirdly, I want to make uh, or draw some implications from patterns, examples that this sets for the church moving forward for us. And consider that in terms of some different groups uh, in the church. So first, let's look at the, the threat to the fellowship here in the church. Um, looking at verse 1, we need to define a couple of terms. There's a uh, complaint comes, it says, from the Hellenistic Jews. Uh, what are the Hellenistic Jews? What does that label mean? Well, the, the, the deep history here is in, in Greek mythology, uh, there's, Greek mythology has a flood narrative, uh, much as a number of ancient um, uh, civilizations do, and it's not totally different from the narrative of the flood in Genesis. 
um, uh, of Noah and so on. And the Greek uh, myth of the flood, there are only two survivors. And as the story goes, they have a son, and they name him Helen. Yes, their son's named Helen. Um, Helen with two L's, unlike Helen, the later Greek Helen of Troy, for example, with only one L. So um, Helen is part of, of Greek mythology. And after Alexander the Great, uh, some Greeks started referring to themselves in Greek as Hellenes or, or Hellenists or, or Hellenes sometimes uh, in English. And so the term Hellenistic came to refer to really all of Greek culture and influence uh, across um, much of the known world. And, and this was still dominant even in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was Greek culture, um, Hellenistic culture. So the reference is that these, these are Jews from outside of Jerusalem, probably even outside of Israel, part of the, the diaspora, the dispersion of Jews uh, since the exiles. Um, in Jerusalem, Jews that were raised in Jerusalem, for example, where the church is growing here, would have grown up with, with Semitic languages still, right? Uh, Aramaic uh, is what, what Jesus and the disciples would have spoken, uh, presumably, primarily uh, related closely to the Hebrew. They, their their uh, synagogues would have read from the Hebrew Old Testament and so on. Um, these Jews of the diaspora, the dispersed Jews beyond Israel, they grew up with Greek. Um, some, many of them wouldn't, wouldn't even have known Hebrew. They had the Septuagint, the Greek Bible, the Greek Old Testament. Uh, they had synagogues that, that read that in Greek, and, the, and they were um, brought up in, in much more Greek or Hellenized culture. Um, that doesn't mean that they weren't devoted believers, they weren't um, you know, sincere and devoted Jews, faithful at synagogue, and so on. But in Jerusalem... Uh, when they came to Jerusalem, they, they were often viewed as something of a, a sort of second-class Jew, right? A bit, a bit tainted, um, Hellenized, right? Um, they had their own synagogues then in Jerusalem because of the, the language and cultural barrier. Uh, Hellenized, Hellenistic synagogues. That, that comes up in the next story about Stephen as well. Um, they were culturally more Greek. So, uh, it, and it wasn't uncommon for, for older Hellenistic Jews, an older couple, to uh, retire, in a sense, to, to move toward the end of their life into Jerusalem um, from, from the broader known world. Um, though they were still a minority, that's, at one estimate, is there were about 10 to 20 percent of the Jews in Jerusalem were these Hellenistic Jews, these Greekified Jews, if you will. Um, and as many of them were older, uh, that, that meant a significant number of widows. Again, without family nearby, uh, and as they were, um, uh, in that they had embraced Christ and come into the church, they'd also left their synagogues, and so didn't have that as a source of aid uh, as well. So the circumstance then, the, the problem here is around what it says, the daily serving of food in verse 1. Uh, that's the, in Greek, the daily diakonia. You can hear our, our English word deacon in that, serving. Um, and this, this was a, a daily uh, helping of those in need, giving food, uh, perhaps clothing, money, other things as well. And the problem is the Hellenistic Jewish widows, so this, this um, culturally linguistic minority, is being overlooked, uh, Luke tells us. Now Luke doesn't say how that worked exactly. Were they being entirely overlooked? 
That feels a little unlikely given what we've read about the early church here so far and the way they were sharing. Um, but perhaps maybe they're just not getting a fair share of the same attention. Um, I think it's entirely possible, maybe likely, that it's something of an oversight, uh, not, not intentional necessarily or with malice or prejudice, but reflecting the fact that it's, it's somewhat natural to be more in tune to the needs of people who are most like you. Right, especially if the people who speak your language, um, people you're closest to, and, and so on. But what's clear is it's become a problem, maybe a point of, of hurt feelings, of some kind of tension, um, and we can imagine how that might be. Among sinners, such a thing is a potential, real potential for a point of, of serious division. Um, I, I think of Paul's... Uh, encouragement to the Ephesians when he says, do not give the devil an opportunity or, or a foothold. Um, here's, here's a potential foothold uh, for the devil in the church. Uh, he's talking there in Ephesians about anger and division that you might be tempted to just leave be or try to sweep aside. And he's saying, don't, don't give the devil an opportunity. And it's, it's a good and important reminder to us, even if the issue that's raised seems small or silly, uh, there's a, a a number of years ago, a church in Dallas that split. Uh, there was a big dispute, and they split, and they both sides filed a lawsuit for the, the property. Uh, and the judge in the case threw the case back to the denomination to decide, which is great, wonderful. Um, but the, 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 the church, the denomination, did a thorough investigation into this split, this big dispute, and they traced it all back to a church dinner where uh, an elder in the church was served a smaller piece of ham than the child next to him. And this, this was, uh, you know, in documentation, this was the origin, sadly, of this dispute. I'm, I'm picturing Mike sitting next to Kenzie at the Valentine's dessert dinner, fuming at the size of dessert. No. Uh, in fact, I can't imagine that kind of thing, right, among us. But there, there are warnings here. Uh, we, we are all capable of ridiculous or even of more rational divisiveness that misrepresents Christ, misrepresents the body of Christ. Uh, we need to work hard, in, just in terms of what, what exactly happens in, in Acts 6 here, uh, to overcome potential barriers, potential cultural barriers, like there are here, uh, to fellowship. And it strikes me, the cultural differences that exist in the, in the, the worldwide church today, not to mention just... You know, the, the, the church in Longmont, for example, are, are vastly greater than what the church in Jerusalem was encountering in, in their day. Um, and yet the call to love and fellowship is the same. And, and the fact that there are so many differences culturally, theologically, in worship and other practices in, in the church today uh, is, is a reality. And, and I think it's a, an opportunity for us to evaluate ourselves from time to time. Would someone... For example, of a different ethnicity than the majority or a very different church tradition, be warmly welcomed among us. Um, the calling is not to uh, accommodate every different viewpoint or practice that might come into our fellowship. We ought to winsomely and graciously but, but firmly hold our convictions before the Lord. Every congregation ought to, but we ought to remove any barriers to fellowship and ministry together as, as best as we can. Um, again, we don't know whether there was any cultural or ethnic prejudice going on here. 
uh, in, in Acts chapter 6, but it, we can recognize that it is easy for sinners uh, to relate to people who have a, maybe a different education level or a different socioeconomic level or a different model of educating their children or a different way of dressing or whatever it might be to relate to them differently. Right? And not necessarily unkindly in an intentional way, but without the same attention or friendship or you know, unintentionally overlooking, as happened here in Acts chapter 6. Uh, so I think we do well to hear Paul's warning, don't allow the devil an opportunity or a foothold. Uh, this passage calls us to address any and every potential point of division uh, to honor Christ among us. So let's look secondly, briefly, at, at the solution that they come to. And I want you to note that whether this is uh, uh, the, the complaint here reflects a, a serious oversight on part of the majority or whether maybe there's some pettiness to the complaint, what we don't know exactly, the apostles either way take it seriously and they address it and they, they call a congregational meeting as it were in verse 2. And the apostles face a dilemma in, in this passage here. Uh, it seems to this point all of the needs and the problems of, of the growing church are, are funneling to them, ultimately. And they're recognizing that as, especially if the physical needs of the growing church are going to need closer and more intensive and, and personal attention, they can't do it all. Right? They can't meet every need, lead in every area, especially as the church is growing so rapidly. And the apostles also here recognize that they have a primary calling, um, to preach, to pray, as it's summarized in our passage here, presumably that also included baptizing and, and shepherding and, and, and overseeing generally. And so they delegate. Uh, they do ordain others to this, this kind of service that's needed. And I want you to note about that, and, and we can use the rest of the Bible to prove this point definitively. Uh, they're delegating this task does not reflect the point, the, the idea that it's unimportant. As if we're, we're not going to do that. I think the delegating of this task reflects the fact that it was important. Uh, just consider the fact the apostles could have received this complaint and huddled up and just made a rule about distrib distributing to those in need. Right? But in fact, they, they assure that personal and godly attention uh, that they may not be able to give is going to be given uh, in this case. So verse 5 says they, they bring the plan to the congregation. Everybody likes the plan. Uh, seven men are chosen to oversee the distribution of aid then. Um, is that distribution to uh, just the widows who made the, uh, brought up the concern, or is it, is it overseeing distribution of needs generally in the church? I, it doesn't say. I, I tend to think it's, it's the latter that they're being given oversight of. But I want you to see also verse 7. Uh, verse 7 is often not read with verses 1 through 6, but I think it ought to be. I think it's a conclusion. It's Luke's conclusion to this scene here. Verse 7 says, And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I, I think that's Luke's comment on the blessing that God gave to the way that the church pursued peace and fellowship here. Um, and these seven servants had a significant hand in that. Okay, so this is the, 
the solution they come to. And as, as we look further at, at the church pursuing peace and sorting how they can best fulfill callings to minister Jesus through preaching his word, through meeting needs and preserving unity and so on, I want to draw some implications, thirdly, uh, implications for three, three groups in the church, uh, our church or any church, and how we all ought to understand uh, these roles. So looking at, at number three on your outline, uh, the first category for implications is everyone, is, is, the, is the congregation as a whole. And I want to direct you particularly to verse 3 again, where the apostles bring, bring the plan before the, before the church. Therefore, brethren, they say, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And I want to particularly draw your attention to the phrase, select from among you. Uh, which points us to the fact the apostles did not choose these leaders. Uh, the congregation is given responsibility to select these seven men. Uh, the apostles didn't choose them. And that's actually an important pattern that we see, an important example that we see through the rest of the New Testament. Uh, that it's not the apostles going, as, as churches are planted uh, more and more, it's not the apostles going around and telling them who their pastors should be and who their elders should be and who their deacons should be. Uh, in Acts 14, for example, everywhere Barnabas and Paul went, it says, uh, elders were appointed. And, and the, the Greek actually uses a word there that means by the raising of hands or by voting. Everywhere they went, they had the congregation choose who they thought should be uh, in that role of, of elders. Uh, the, the, essentially the successors of, of the apostles. Um, leadership and authority was clearly with the apostles in, in significant ways, and yet it's, uh, and, and it's clearly given to elders afterwards. But this, this passage reflects the real and important authority that the congregation has as a whole. Um, elders and deacons are not self-appointed. Uh, they're not self-ordained. Uh, that, that's how it works in some church traditions, um, but the congregation here exercises its collective authority and responsibility in choosing their leaders. And again, we see that repeated throughout the New Testament. Um, our, our church, our statement of faith is, is clear on the one hand that, that final authority and shepherding and so on is with the elders in the church. Uh, but at the same time, our, our testimony, uh, chapter 25, has this statement. The Lord Jesus Christ has clothed his church with power and authority. And this authority is vested in the whole membership of the church, which has the right to choose its officers from among those of its own members who possess the scriptural qualifications. And that comes from this example and, and from others in the New Testament. Acts 14, I mentioned already. So because of that example in the New Testament, um, in, in our church, elders, deacons, pastors do not get appointed by just a few people or by a, some far-off bishop or something like that. Um, but have to be chosen and affirmed by the whole congregation. And that functions here in Acts chapter 6 uh, as an important way of promoting peace and unity in the church, the involvement of the whole congregation in, in a situation that had potential to be very divisive with different viewpoints. So that any cultural or age or ethnic or socioeconomic dynamics in the congregation would have a voice, would be reflected in the decision. And, and it's interesting to note um, in Luke telling us the outcome in verse 5, 
he names all of those seven men who were chosen. And he might name them all because uh, two of them go on to have a bit of a story in the next two chapters, Stephen and Philip. Uh, But he also might name them all because to, to show us that they all have Greek names. Uh, they were all Hellenized Jews that were chosen. Now, it, that, that's a bit speculative because it's possible that a, that a Jerusalem-born Jew, Jew would be given a Greek name, but it's, it's less likely. And it's, it's at least very interesting to note they all have Greek names. There are no Hebrew names here. And that suggests that the congregation, given this responsibility, chose those who were particularly well-suited to make sure that, that this minority group was not overlooked. Uh, that they were well cared for. Uh, So again, I think this points to a very important responsibility uh, of the whole membership of the church, not only to serve, but to choose leaders, to to be involved in in give input in various ways. Um, Just another example, that the apostles gather the whole congregation here, they share the plan, and then Luke notes in verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. It doesn't say how, did they, did they raise their hands or vote somehow? Um, but the apostles brought it to the congregation for approval. Now, it doesn't say what would have happened if they didn't approve. Would the apostles go back to the drawing board or would they say, well, you know, we think this is what's wise, we're going to give it a try, I don't, I don't know. But, but significantly, importantly, it was brought to the congregation and, and they were involved in that way as well. Secondly, I want to consider some implications for deacons in the church. And, and for all of us, as we think about and, and pray uh, for our deacons, uh, this passage is in, in church history sometimes been viewed as uh, these are the first deacons in the church. And then there are also many detractors from that view. Uh, so I want to ask that question briefly first. Are these, are these deacons? Uh, are these the first deacons in the church? And, and I'll look at sort of some thoughts favoring that view and some thoughts uh, maybe against that idea. First... Um, possibly favoring the idea that these are the first deacons. The, the specific task and need uh, that's addressed here seems to closely mirror the role and the purpose of deacons uh, later in the New Testament. Um, the, the service that they give is described repeatedly uh, with the word diakonia, which is the same root word as, as deacon, uh, although it's not used, certainly not used here in a technical way, it's a very common word, just means to serve, um, but it's, it's something of note anyways. And then also significantly, uh, hands are laid on them. There, there's, there's a, it's not as if we just sort of pick some people to you know, go do this task, but there's, there's a formal commissioning, a formal ordination uh, of these men. And, and just as an aside... That laying on of hands, as, as we're seeing examples of things as we go through the book of Acts, that, that parallels the way that Moses laid hands on Joshua. It parallels the way that, that hands are laid on Barnabas and Paul, several chapters from here, as they're sent as missionaries. It, it parallels the way that Paul speaks of hands being laid on Timothy, um, as, as he was called as a pastor, and, and on other elders in the New Testament. And so that's why uh, we still do the same. Uh, in our ordination. Nothing, uh, nothing magical about laying on hands. It's sort of like uh, anointing in the Old Testament. It's, it's a, a symbolic way to set someone apart uh, for a particular calling and office in the church. Um, against the idea of, of seeing these as, as definitely the first deacons, um, significantly is they're not called deacons. 
And uh, that would have been easy for Luke to do and, and probably most natural for him to say, and these were the first deacons. He never once, so they called deacons here. Um, and then also these men don't go on to function uh, really in the role that, that generally we understand deacons to be in from the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Stephen and Philip, for example, we find them in the next couple chapters doing miracles, preaching, evangelizing. Um, they're functioning uh, really like apostles uh, in, in significant ways. Um, again, uh, well, I'll come back to this, but, but there seems to be a little bit more distinction between the roles later in the New Testament. Paul speaks of the qualifications of elders being able to teach those who labor in the word. He doesn't describe uh, deacons particularly in that way. Though, again, I'll come back to that. But um, So here, here's what I think the, the conclusion I come to. I, I don't think it's at all clear that these were the first deacons uh, in a strict sense. Um, they're not called deacons. Um, deacon is a clearly delineated office later in the New Testament and, and also working in relation to elders. We have deacons and elders. These, these are clearly the ongoing offices in the church. Here we have no elders. We have apostles uh, and these seven men. Um, and, and some differences there. Um, so that's generally my conclusion. However, there does, this, this does seem to anticipate and, and perhaps pave the way for the role in the office of deacons later. And, and there are some very close parallels to the relationship between deacons and elders in the rest of the New Testament. So just as we can, I think, draw some important parallels between apostles and elders, right? Not in every way by, by any means, but in terms of having oversight and shepherding and, and, and ministering the word in the church, there are important parallels. Uh, likewise, I think we can draw helpful parallels to the role of deacons from this passage. Uh, the, the need that arose, the, the way that it related to the calling of the apostles, um, the ordaining to this role, there, there's some significantly parallel things to uh, the office of deacon in the New Testament. So if, if that's a fair conclusion, then, then what is illustrated here about the function and responsibility of deacons, perhaps? Well, there, there's not a lot of data and description in the New Testament about the function of deacons. It, we, we don't have a lot of description about what, what they're doing, what's going on in, in the church. But uh, from this account, what might we conclude uh, in terms of what's parallel is, is a basic calling of deacons. Uh, and, and illustrated, I think, here are, are two, uh, the two main aspects or dimensions of, of what deacons are, how deacons serve in the church. Uh, and the first is perhaps an emphasis in their service uh, generally on physical needs. Uh, and that's pointed to by, just by the word um, diakonos for deacon uh, and diakonia, the, the service that's going on here. Um, the task that, that's taken on here in this passage also points in that direction. So that's one aspect, although it's not absolute. I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but a second dimension, more broadly, uh, is that the responsibility of deacons are those things delegated to them by the elders. Uh, here by the apostles, again, drawing parallels, uh, there, there's a key connection uh, with the elders and, and working together in the church. Um, in other words, deacons are not just a parallel but separate, you know, functioning all on their own board uh, in the church. They, they serve to allow the elders, the pastor, to not be pulled away from, from their primary calling to, to preach, to pray, as is summarized here, to, to shepherd, and, and so on in the church. 
Here, here's how one, uh, one writer summarizes uh, this. In, in what ways do deacons serve? Uh, by assisting the elders, uh, guarding the ministry of the word, organizing service, caring for the needy, protecting unity, mobilizing ministry. Uh, various ways that they serve the, the delegation of uh, the elders. Um, uh, uh, some writing on, on Desiring God ministry summarizes it similarly this way. What do deacons do? In short, they assist the elders uh, by meeting needs in the life of the church. They unleash the word of God by allowing the elders to focus on praying, teaching, governing, or, or shepherding, overseeing, uh, whatever word we might use there. Um, another related lesson to that, to, to the degree again, that this passage is parallel to the calling of deacons, I think this passage also shows that it's a high calling. Uh, it's a high calling. Um, the needs of these widows did not call for just a quick administrative rule to be passed down, um, but rather the full attention of, of a de dedicated, godly group of people um, ordained to this task. Um, and their role was, was significant in a couple of directions. It was significant... Uh, toward the apostles in terms of uh, helping to protect and promote their gospel ministry. And of course, it was significant uh, toward the needy people. It, it, it extended the ministry of Jesus himself to the needy, um, the, the physical needs of humans in general. We all have needs at, at times that come up. So uh, another way to put this is we are not Gnostics in the church. Right? We don't believe as some Christian spinoff groups throughout history have that the spiritual is important and the physical is not. Right? We recognize Jesus came to minister to body and soul, to redeem and, and to raise our bodies from the dead, uh, to redeem the entire physical universe uh, even as well. Um, another way to put this is, is the calling of these, these seven and, and parallel of deacons, I'll put it in a double negative, is not a non-spiritual office. Uh, it's not a non-spiritual office. You see, the um, uh, part of the the basic qualification that's listed here um, is choosing men of full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, um, and I think that's fully applicable uh, to deacons in the church as well. Um, the the ministry of mercy is a ministry of Jesus. The ministry of mercy of Jesus and and his prophetic ministry is preaching. These are inseparable. Uh, they're, they're not separable. For example, the, the, these seven men freeing the apostles for ministry of the word uh, cannot mean that these seven men then were not to minister the word in some way to the, the people that they were serving in terms of physical needs. Uh, those are inseparable for Christians. The fact that these, these seven men were freeing the apostles for prayer, uh, it might mean that they, they were given in a... In a, in a even greater way in terms of time and so on to prayer, but it can't mean that these seven would not pray, would not pray with and for the, the people whose needs that they were meeting. Uh, and, and likewise, there, there is overlap between elders and deacons in the church today. There are important distinctions, but there's, there's significant overlap in some ways as well. We find that even in the New Testament. Paul, uh, later in the New Testament, is, is laboring to collect funds for the poor in Jerusalem. He didn't just say, well, get me a deacon to do this, right? He, he, um, he was not above that. As deacons serve needy people, again, as we all are at various times, uh, deacons will in every case serve people whose spiritual needs 
are, are wrapped up inextricably with their physical needs. Uh, that, that will always be the case. And so it's a high calling. Then thirdly, finally, I want to draw some implications for, for elders in the church. And this, this point reflects again that we're drawing some parallels, that there are parallels to be drawn between apostle, the apostles and then elders, as the apostles instruct that, that all the new churches that are planted throughout the New Testament are to have elders, as those who are given ultimate responsibility under Christ for the care of souls, for shepherding, for teaching. I want you to note that some potential pitfalls for the, the apostles as this complaint comes to them. Um, where are they going to go with this, this problem that comes up? And, and there are some potential pitfalls that reflect errors uh, in, in church leadership today uh, in responding to needs. On the one hand, uh, they might have had an unwillingness to do more menial or behind-the-scenes kind of service. Right? And that, that can be wrongly true of pastors or elders in the church. Sort of a, well, that's beneath my concern uh, kind of a response. On the other hand, uh, maybe they'd respond by wanting to micromanage everything. There's another error, maybe sort of at the other end of the spectrum, right? Unwilling to delegate, unwilling not to have control over everything. And so I think the apostles are a godly example in, in two broad ways in this passage. Uh, first, of recognizing their particular calling their, and, and therefore a priority for them that God had given to them. And secondly, then, in, in delegating and, and involving the rest of the congregation. We've already looked at that a little bit. But I, I want you to look at verse 4 uh, in particular, where the, uh, in explaining the plan to the congregation, the apostles say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I don't think that summarizes the whole ministry of the apostles or of elders. They're significantly, they're, they're called to be overseers, shepherds, generally, and, and that, that takes a lot of time and effort. But, but I want to look at these two things they mention as uh, clearly priorities for leaders in the church, for elders, uh, and for the church. First, the priority that prayer is to have in the church. The priority that, that prayer is to have in the life and ministry of the church's shepherds. And so I want to ask my fellow elders and myself at the same time, are you devoted to prayer? My fellow elders, are you devoted to prayer for God's people, for yourself, that, that God would maintain humility and love for others and give wisdom? We're to be devoted to prayer. And secondly, this points to the priority that the word is to have in the church, that the word is to be central uh, Paul writes to Timothy, uh, Pastor Timothy, later uh, in the New Testament, in his first letter to him, and he says this in chapter 4, Until I come, devote yourself. What does he tell Timothy particularly in that whole letter to devote himself to? Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And then he writes back to Timothy later in, in our letter we call Second Timothy. In chapter 3, he it's the famous statement, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He's saying, Pastor Timothy, that this is how you will feed your people and, and build up the church. And so what is Paul's most powerful directive in 2 Timothy? He then says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is judge of the living and the dead by his appearing in the kingdom. I charge you, he says, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. And likewise, we could ask, how, how is it that God's people grow in the church, grow in faith and hope and love? How are they sanctified? How are we, how are we kept from sin? How do we feed on Christ? It's through Christ's word. Right? Using another of Paul's phrases, there, there are to be those, by implication, the church laboring in the word, he says. And so that the word can be faithfully and carefully and consistently and, and substantially given to the people of God. I want you to note in this connection, uh, again, Luke's conclusion to this whole story in verse 7, uh, where he says, the word of God kept on spreading. The word of God kept on spreading. It's, I, I think it is his conclusion. I think it's an interesting way to state. He doesn't say, and the Hellenistic widows got all their food. Presumably they did. But ultimately, Luke's conclusion is the word of God continued to spread. God continued to work powerfully through his word. And, and, and that's a significant, insignificant part due to the, the crucial service of these seven men, along with the apostles who particularly were uh, ministering the word. Um, some churches have elevated the service aspect of Jesus' ministry meeting needs and doing good and so on, all good things, uh, over the word, even replacing the centrality of the word uh, in the church. Again, these are good things, but the church without God's word is central, is, is dead. Right? Uh, Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 about the appearance of godliness, but without the power. Uh, such as, is a ministry, a church, without God's word as central. Uh, so let's take this as an example as well, and, and may God's word be our delight and our priority uh, here at Salt and Light. Uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we do give thanks to you again this morning for uh, your word uh, that you've given us in, in the book of Acts here in the uh, realistic example of trouble and division that rises in the church, but, but this wonderful example of uh, your blessing on your people when they pursue peace and unity uh, and care for each other. And so we ask that that would be true of us. Um, we ask that we would pursue your glory by pursuing love and unity and care for each other, that you'd make us uh, mindful and concerned for any, any foothold that the devil might have uh, among us. And we just pray that you would, by your spirit, preserve uh, that unity among us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.